are in a new era of how we respond to and value online data privacy and security. It will change the way companies and consumers interact with each other. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Before we start, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is my co-host, Kelsey Warner. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. So delving into the topic, which has got many different strands, and and I'll kind of come to a roundabout way of of, of why we, we, we are discussing it. So online data uh, risks, online data privacy, protecting your online data, um, a couple of things are going on. One is massive technological shifts, even even after many, many technological shifts that we've already had, there's another wave coming, uh, which means that protecting your data is going to be paramount. And then we have a new level of awareness from people or a rising level of awareness after many, many years of discussing this, of it being at the top of uh, surveys of what CEOs say are, is, is a big risk which is protecting your online data. Now people understand it and consumers know that there is a relationship between what you do online and the information and data that is being gathered by those you interact with. And so you've got, for example, Apple, which is sitting on saying, it's sitting on one side of the fence, which is to protect the consumer's privacy and online data. And then you seem to have every other company in the world. Yes, Apple has pitted itself, us against the world, and we're seeing that in a high stakes courtroom drama against Epic Games. But before we get to that, I want to peg this to the rise of the new wave of deep technology. And in recent months, the UAE has actually been planting its own flag in quantum computing and preparing for a post-quantum future. So when we think about data and how it's part of everything from when you, you know, check your watch, open your phone, you know, turn your car on, Data is part of our everyday lives, and the basic building block of our own digital security is the protection of that data. And it's never been more important. And so encryption, one of the fundamental applications of cryptography, everyone stay with me here, which converts information into what should be an unbreakable code to prevent unauthorized access. So what's happening with encryption as we're seeing the rise of quantum computers, the rise of quantum computing, is that these quantum computers will one day be able to break today's encryption protocols at a speed and scale beyond anything we've ever seen, according to the Future Today Institute, a futurist society that really said a stark warning earlier this year about the rise of quantum computers. So the UAE is kind of rising to that occasion and joining other major countries. Quantum computing powers, essentially. Other quantum powers like the US, China, France, Germany, the UK, Japan. Um, The UAE is now the leading and only country in the Middle East that has put forward plans to build a quantum computer and also now runs a cryptography institute to prepare for this post-quantum world. And I think we need to first think about this wave of deep tech before we start talking about Apple, because I think it just, we seem to be solving yesterday's problems with the Apple case. And so I want to look a little bit to the future first. Well, you are the future editor. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, so, interested. But it, it, you're right, because on the one hand, you have this emerging area of focus, which is related to this 
deep tech, as you say, um, which is also creating new industries. Exactly. Right. So deep tech, I want to kind of ground us. So the App Store, Apple's issue in our growing literacy around our personal data and how it's being fought in courtrooms, it's a Zuckerberg versus Cook issue in a lot of ways. This is one one issue, but deep tech in its capacity, its potential to solve real world problems will make the App Store look like child's play. The App Store, which was introduced back in 2008, in the first four years after the App Store was introduced, we had things like Instagram, YouTube, WeWork. All of these like kind of new tech companies came to the fore, and it felt like an incredibly exciting time for technology. But when you think about a post-quantum future, you think about deep tech, you start to see things like Moderna and the mRNA vaccine. You start to see things like SpaceX and Blue Origin and, say, Medicus AI, this med tech company out of Dubai that we've been following for a long time. You start to get like actual solutions to real world problems around disease, climate change, space exploration. So the App Store, I'm happy we're talking about it today. But first, I wanted to talk about deep tech, the advent of deep tech. So so the next stage of of evolution in terms of our, our digital capabilities are tackling, let's say, more serious problems than uh, what Craigslist did, um, which you know you needed a really direct way to to rent an apartment or or to find something, right? Which was web, you know, back was it Web two point whatever it was that heralded this era of social media that we think has really changed our lives, but perhaps hasn't. Right, it it has it changed our lives, but when you look at the last decade of innovation, what's really exciting in the innovation space and in technology is not what. Apple or Facebook has provided. It seems like they've introduced a whole host of headaches instead that we now need to litigate. But the things that are really exciting today are these things that bring technology into a physical space, into the real world. And so it's exciting, but we're more savvy to the risks that come with advancing technology. And so, and so as you are able to solve these problems with your increased computing power, that also gives tools to um, those that would use them uh, to, uh, whether it's steal things from you or uh, bring down your systems or whatever it might be, what we've been seeing the rise of sort of the hacker over the last decade or so on an industrial scale or a commercial scale, um, they they really will have very, very dangerous tech uh, to turn against us. Yeah. And so I, I spoke to Dr. Najwa Araj, who is appointed the chief researcher at the Cryptography Research Lab in Abu Dhabi. It's an initiative of the Technology Innovation Institute, TII. And she outlined her plans for me for the cutting edge initiative here in Abu Dhabi. And I hope it gives listeners kind of a better understanding of post-quantum and what we're preparing for. Cryptography, I would say, is the foundational block of digital security, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for you to protect your information, whether it is your information that is at rest, which is the information you store, or it's the information in transit, which is uh, um, information that you communicate, whether it's a peer-to-peer, whether it's one-to-many, many-to-one, over various networks, cryptography is the foundational block to protect the information, the confidentiality, the privacy of the information, and to give it properties, for example, like uh, like uh, non-repudiation, right? So um, besides that, uh, cryptography is a component which is important for it to be sovereign. So basically, like whether it is governments implementing cryptographic solutions or private sectors implementing cryptographic solutions, it's important to have sovereignty over the design 
over the implementation. Uh, as we are moving in this digital era, you have cyber threats are increasing. That was Dr. Najwa Araj speaking to Kelsey. So we, we've talked about the deep tech aspect and, and we just heard there about how cryptography is becoming more of a business, if you like, a solution, something that you know isn't just for the NSA and hobbyists. A real national security issue, sovereignty comes into play. If you're a country like the UAE, you want to own the algorithms that are protecting you against would-be hackers, would-be cyber threats. And so grounding us in this, I think, is just a helpful way of, as you said, as we get savvier, it's important to bring just this consumer savvy that we have to our own labs around just how we use our smartphones to how we're understanding the next decade of innovation. I think it's helpful to you know, these things can feel really, you know, unreachable and abstract. But if you can connect things like the crypto lab with user data and Apple and Facebook, it starts to feel more relevant, it starts to feel more real. But we, it means that we value, we value our data, we value our, our privacy online like never before. And, and this has been the result of many, many discussions and some scandals. And, and again, as we, as we grow as a society, in terms of our digital understanding, as we, we go deeper into our digital lives, we, we learn that there are risks out there, that it isn't just, you know, literally fun and games. So we, we, you spoke to Dr. Najwa about cryptography, about, as you said, you know, protecting the algorithms that we're creating to help ourselves. But then you have the, the, the sort of more consumer level, which is we now are making choices daily about how we, we use that data. And and to, to come back to Apple, what we keep mentioning them is that in their recent update to their operating system for the iPhone, they introduced a feature that made each user have to approve if an app that you've downloaded from their app store um, can follow you um, and track your activity elsewhere Right. Uh, through the phone. As right? you travel away from this app and go. So if you're sitting in words with friends and you head on over to your TikTok app and your Facebook app and check it on LinkedIn, can we can we continue to follow you and see who you interact with, like your contacts, your photos, your purchase history, your web browsing history? The list goes on and on. And in the early days of social media, we didn't really understand this was happening. And, you know... I think there there are a lot of different viewpoints on why Apple have introduced this into their latest update. I would I would say from my point of view there are two aspects to it. One that can, there are consumers that are increasingly concerned about their privacy and want to see that protected and unlike before. But then on the other hand, you Apple's creating this narrative because everything they do is a story. So by making this update and doing it this way, they suddenly bring this discussion uh, to the center center stage, and then it makes privacy and online data even more of an issue, which hurts their competitors, mm -hmm. such as Facebook. Sure. For example, who they're advertising, a lot of it depends on the data that they get from what their users do all around the internet, not just on their platforms. Right. Tim Cook, for the last year or so, has been beating that drum for a while now, and sort of a durable line of his is that, you know, user privacy is a basic fundamental right. And here he is at a tech event earlier this year speaking on that. The fact is that an interconnected ecosystem of companies and data brokers, a purveyors of fake news and peddlers of division, 
of trackers and hucksters just looking to make a quick buck is more present in our lives than it has ever been. And it has never been so clear how it degrades our fundamental right to privacy first and our social fabric by consequence. As I've said before, if we accept as normal and unavoidable that everything in our lives can be aggregated and sold, then we lose so much more than data. We lose the freedom to be human. And yet, this is a hopeful new season, a time of thoughtfulness and reform. And the most concrete progress of all is thanks to many of you. That was Apple CEO Tim Cook talking about privacy and the internet and online. And it's part of that this wider discussion about, as we put it, our hypothesis that it's a new era in terms of how uh, individuals, companies, um, consumers are looking at online data, online privacy. But there is the kind of bigger argument, which is who controls the internet, who controls this nebulous thing that is uncontrollable. And in Apple's world, the, the things like the App Store, platforms like that, they want to have complete control over it. So um, on the one hand, they're making app developers take permission before they follow you and what you're doing, which some may say, great, well done. That's, that's fantastic. But it's also in some ways a restraint of trade because it imposes rules that nobody has nobody has said this has to happen. There's no regulator saying this has to happen, no government. It's literally the world of Apple saying this is how it should be. So you have starting today, Wednesday, um, a legal battle between Apple and the maker of Fortnite over what they believe to be a monopolistic practice in the App Store. They, they basically, Apple has told Fortnite that they cannot charge their users directly. They have to charge them through the App Store because Apple sits in the middle and takes a cut. They take 15 to 30% in the App Store on in-app purchases and downloads. And Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney, who would actually like to operate his own App Store, has said that this is antitrust, anti-competitive behavior. It jacks up prices for developers because they have to pay all sorts of fees. And then it creates this walled garden, is their legal argument, that prevents healthy competitive practices, that Apple has become the gatekeeper, and it's led to higher prices, less competition. And he's joined by Epic is the first in the courtroom, but certainly there are critics of Apple behind him who say Epic has a strong case here. Supposedly, Facebook has its own antitrust case that it hasn't filed yet. It's trying to decide whether or not to file. But Mark Zuckerberg has come out and said on the record that, of course, Apple is a dominant platform wants to use its position to interfere with how our apps work. Why wouldn't they as as a competitor? Tim Cook will say Facebook isn't a competitor. We we have like <laughs> I don't have time for that. Um which is kind of an interesting. Mark Zuckerberg has really positioned Apple as a competitor. Tim Cook will say we don't we're not a social media company. No thank you. Um but it is it is interesting. Apple, the holder of the operating system, the holder of the hardware, if you want to come and hang out and play in this house, you know, you've got it's in exchange for something. You can't just be here on your own. But I do have to say that the Epic Games argument of we'd like to replace an app store with our own, or we would just like to join the app store with another app store and only charge a few percentage points less because Epic Games' current app store charges 10 to 13%, I think. So it's only a slightly cheaper option than Apple. 
They just say, we want to join you. We don't necessarily have a better idea. Well, again, it comes down to who, who's, who makes the rules. And all of these companies feel that they have a right to, to, to make the rules themselves, whether it's Apple or Facebook or Epic. Um, I mean, Fortnite itself is a, is a world unto its users. I don't play it personally, but a lot of people do. Um, and within that, there are purchases you make. And you know, to exit that and have to have extra infrastructure in the app store that is outside of that, I can understand why that would seem, that would seem odd to both the maker and the user. But largely this case is the flip side of the privacy argument so the on the you would uh, you would think that for the user which is the customer let's say if you're a business you want to be transparent with them about how their data is being used and about how they are being treated um online now apple's argument is is that we are the only ones genuinely concerned about privacy and the user. And hence, we want to create a safe play area for users. Hence, you pay extra for your iPhone. You pay extra for the ecosystem that we create that is nice and safe. And to an extent, I can see how that is a continuation of Steve Jobs's idea of um, in the beginning of like, the consumer doesn't want lots of choice. The consumer wants to be I given something. Understand. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yes. Speaking of data privacy. The ghost of Steve Jobs. <laughs> Is alive and well in this in this recording studio. <laughs> that literally, my Apple Watch started talking when I said Steve Jobs. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, without risk of invoking his specter, Steve Jobs um, believed the consumer wanted a closed-ended uh, solution for their computing at the time, which w- went against everything that the computing industry had thought of up to that point, which was give users control. Let sure. them do what they want. Let them play around with things. Let them mess around with things. And give give users, but also give developers control. That that there's the internet ultimately is at its best when it's an open, democratic environment where you have open-ended, open-source code to, you know, develop by. But Apple closed the gates and to the victor goes the spoil. So in the first quarter of this year, the App Store made $17 billion in revenue for Apple. And they'll argue that it cost them $100 billion to build the Apple ecosystem. So how dare you challenge that we shouldn't charge for access to our kingdom? But right, to your point, the Steve Jobs vision was to create this beautiful sans serif world. Well, I think the one thing that is clear is that it's kind of the end of the Wild West for the internet Mm -hmm. because control is coming. You have the big tech companies that all have various degrees of control over their own platforms and ecosystem. But the government will be coming at Mm -hmm. some point. And when I say governments, I mean, I'm talking about Western governments here, the US, the European Union. um, The Chinese government is already cracking down, for example, on Alibaba. Um, You you know, the the regulators will put their foot down. But I think the difference being that they have so much power and money that the likes of Apple and Facebook will try and get ahead of this and will try and lead the change. And I wonder if this isn't, you know, Apple's way of of kind of setting the narrative so that they can kind of control things. I think you're absolutely right. Apple is aiming to be the change. And I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that the lessons we're learning right now around big tech and power, we can take with us as we enter into a deep tech world. Kelsey Warner, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be here. 
Thank you all for listening. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Please do leave a review or subscribe with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. Do join us again next time.